You working on another book? Yes, I am. It must really be something, making stuff up all the time. Yeah, it teaches you to lie. What's your new book about? A detective. He falls for the wrong woman. What happens? She kills him. Welcome to Now Playing Podcast's review of Basic Instinct 2. She's evil! She's brilliant! Part of our Basic Instinct movie retrospective series. She knows where I live and breathe. Hosted by Arnie. Like his drugs, he liked his girls, he liked his rock and roll. Jacob. You're dealing with a devious, diabolical mind. And Stuart. You like playing games, don't you? Games are fun. This podcast will be spoiler-filled and may contain harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. Listen to me, Curran. I'm going to get a lot of heat on this. I don't want any mistakes. We hope you enjoy the show. You're in over your head. Maybe. But this is how I'll catch my killer. Today we're discussing Basic Instinct 2, also known as Basic Instinct 2 Risk Addiction. Does this really have a subtitle? It does. Starring Sharon Stone, David Morrissey, Charlotte Rampling, David Thewlis, directed by Michael Catton-Jones. This is the now-playing co-host skilled in the art of mind-fucking, Arnie. And Stuart. And this is the host who always podcasts at 110 miles per hour, Jacob. I'm doing it now. I'm in a car. I don't know what kind of car this is. The Cobra, a Ferrari, whatever that fancy car is. Stop masturbating. <laughs> <laughs> Never. So how does the director of Doc Hollywood and Memphis Bell end up directing Basic Instinct 2? That was my question for you, Artie. I'm like, who is this director? Oh, he's done a movie. I know Doc Hollywood. I know you're a fan of that. Like, I never watched Doc Hollywood and thought, yeah, sexy erotic thriller. All right. I think there's deeper questions than just who the director is. Oh, I got a lot of questions about this thing. Who asked for this? Because obviously there is a sell-by date on any franchise. If you don't make a sequel in the first decade, the chances are nobody wants it. I can't think of too many movies that can go 14 years and have the same level of anticipation and success. But from 1992 to 2006, we should have had this way before that. Like, what took so long and why did they decide 14 years Later, it was still relevant. Well, immediately after Basic Instinct came out and was such a hit, Karolko was like, Verhoeven, we want you to make a sequel. We want to get the whole gang back together again. We want more money. And so everybody signed on the line and Verhoeven declined. He had never had any interest in doing what he's already done. He didn't do Robocop 2. He didn't do Starship Troopers 2. He did not want to do Basic Instinct 2. He had this other Joe Esterhouse project that was just too enticing called Showgirls. <laughs> yeah, I mean, oof, yeah. We'll cover it one day. I'll just leave it there. Yes, he made an incredibly bad judgment about what would help his career. I think anything would have been better than that. 
But yeah, why didn't we have that come out the same year? I guess would be my question. Why didn't somebody else put out at the height of erotic thrillers Basic Instinct 2? Sharon Stone became a very big star. She was doing quite a bit of work. She got an Academy Award nomination for working for Scorsese in Casino. And so she wasn't immediately interested in coming back to this. But starting in the later 90s, Sharon Stone was looking at maybe returning to this role, but it was wrapped up in rights issues. Carol Co. had gone out of business, MGM claimed to own the rights for a while, and it just became a whole to-do. And then something actually very sad happened. I mentioned last show, I got Sharon Stone's autobiography, She mentions Basic Instinct a lot in it. She does not mention Basic Instinct 2 or Catwoman in it, which really disappoints me. I mean, if you're going to do a tell-all, tell-all. Yeah. Yeah, we got to know about Catwoman. Come on. (laughs) Yeah, we do want to know about that. (laughs) But in 2001, Sharon Stone had a near-fatal stroke. I remember hearing about that, yep. She took two years off of acting in order to recover from that. You know... After that period, she was trying to have a comeback is when she did Catwoman and things like that that were just not well-received, not good movies. And there were talks around the time that she returned to acting about doing this movie. And Carolco had gone out of business but reformed as C2, and C2 was going to make this movie... And then, finally, they said, no, we're not doing it. So Sharon Stone sued them. She had a pay-or-play deal, which means you get paid whether or not we make this movie when you sign the contract. She was getting $14 million, mm-hmm. and they weren't paying it. And so she sued them for her $14 million, and they were like, screw it, we'll just make the movie then. it was easier to make the film without any idea about who was going to write it direct it what it would be about i guess there was probably no discussion about michael douglas coming back they had discussed some leads michael douglas was like bandied about in early talks but he had no interest they actually talked about having a co-star on this robert downey jr was going to be in this And then he got charged with drug possession. I mean, that makes him perfect for the role. Yeah, there's some seedy types in this. Yeah, but he was in jail. He was actually in jail. I mean, he's a celebrity. He could get weekends out to film. This couldn't have taken more than a weekend to film, I mean. Oh, you say that, but I do remember a director I really do respect, David Cronenberg, at one point was attached to this project. And I remember being horrified that he was going to make this movie. Wow. And then wisely he made A History of Violence instead. Yeah, they looked at having real people in front of and behind the camera. Kurt Russell and Pierce Brosnan were approached and neither one wanted to do the nudity. Then they had their star. They knew who it was going to be. Benjamin Bratt. (laughs) Right. I read that. I could not believe that. And Sharon Stone refused because Benjamin Bratt was not a good enough actor. Now... 
they were together in Catwoman, so she does yeah. have some experience <laughs> knowing he's not a good enough actor. Not a good enough actor because Morrissey, and I'm not talking about the singer, David Morrissey, I don't even know who this guy is. Like, that was good enough? Wow. Can we talk about, like, who must have passed on this for it to wind up with the people that it did? Like, nobody must have wanted to work with her. I've heard she's difficult. But then again, a lot of people are difficult and you still do the film because you're paid well or you're working with a legend or you think it's going to do something for your career. But absolutely everyone must have treated this like the thermal nuclear meltdown that they had to run away from as far and as fast as they could. Because you can't believe how little star power is here. And hearing the director talk about it, is great because on the blu-ray are the press kits from the time and the commentary and you get to hear him talk about how all these people could be stars but they choose not to have that life they'd rather be good actors than movie stars I mean, I believe that with David Thewlis, but for your lead, you got to get someone that's got name recognition. Uh Uh-uh. Second tree from the right in a Peter Pan production or something like (laughs) this pasty (laughs) asexual man is going to like get this sex thriller. That guy has been in a ton of stuff. Now, I looked and none of it have I seen none of it at all there we go you always do this yes I'm sure he's worked no one knows who the hell he is nobody cares to see this man this is a star part being put forward to a man that again was like not it like last one called like had to do it because everyone else said no are we sure because like this happens sometimes our uk fans like speak up and go how dare you don't recognize who this person is they've done this and this and that are we sure like this isn't some secret star in the uk yes (laughs) but all of these casting decisions were made by michael caton jones who got this script he was working on a film called shooting dogs Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Which might have been slightly more enjoyable than shooting Sharon Stone, unless it involved a pistol. And this was actually filmed in Rwanda. So he's in Rwanda filming this movie. A script is delivered to his door with no title. It's just a script he has to read and be made or not. Now, on the commentary, he says, I thought this would be fun. I've never made a sequel before. The script was set in New York, but I thought we'd move it to London and make it a real European psychological thriller. Now, here's what he said more recently. Right. I was completely broke and had to take anything that came in. I was shooting dogs, man. I literally was eating dog meat. In Rwanda, yeah. like Yeah, I'm in Rwanda, like living like a refugee. Basic Instinct 2 was this poison chalice that had been passed around and eventually it arrived at my door. Yeah, I agree. It feels like the project that only Sharon Stone wanted to get made. And now that you're explaining that it was a pay-per-play deal, that Caracol, which again was so free with throwing money around back in the 90s, $3 million for that awful script, $15 million for Michael Douglas. And now because they don't want to pay her $14 million, they're going to cobble together something. That just seems unfortunate. That's too bad. 
But to answer your question, I do feel like Michael Catton Jones had some hits. Some reason why you might want to use him in a British thriller is he, he came to prominence in the late 80s with a movie called Scandal. It was a true story about uh, political operatives that got caught up in a sex scandal. So if you're shooting a sex thriller in England, maybe he's your guy. Yeah, more recently, I mean, I had seen The Jackal, that Richard Gere movie with Bruce Willis, a remake of Day of the Jackal, and Rob Roy, I had seen that back in the day. It was decent, as I recall, Liam Neeson, yeah. Yeah, but this was the last film he's made that I've ever heard of. Mm-hmm. Shooting dogs. I think you've said enough. Like, yes, I get it. Uh, And again, we can laugh, but I can also have empathy thinking that if you were at the very pit of your career and you're offered this, do you say yes? Do you take a project knowing it won't be good, but knowing that it could return you to, if not the A-list, at least some kind of prominence? You're not in Rwanda anymore. I guess it's a devil's deal. And it sounds like one that he kind of regrets now. Yeah, I mean, why wouldn't you regret this? This movie, it's not like they completely cheaped out. It had a $70 million budget. Mm. They actually spent $70 million on this film? I mean, keep in mind Sharon Stone got 14 just right off the top. Because so much of it looks like it's shot in a green screen box. Like <laughs> It is such an empty film. Can't wait to talk about that packed club scene in the bathroom. <laughs> One of the things that the director did fight for is we're not going to shoot in Toronto and say this is New York. Let's move this to London and say London is London. Yeah, which is an expensive city. I feel, yeah, they have some establishing shots from London. I don't know how much was actually shot on location. My guess is more than a little. It it probably was shot there. Again, to justify that budget, yeah, I'll give them that. They shot on location in London. They got Sharon Stone back, who is 48 years old. She's the age Michael Douglas was when he signed on to the first movie. And not to be sexist, but that is different for men and for women yeah i mean this you call this risk addiction there's a big risk here there's risk embarrassment like sharon stone has to be a little worried coming back 14 years later and still saying i got this now she looks good in this movie i think she does have it but i would be very worried after my early career like she did a few of those sex thrillers afterwards diabolique sliver she did her sex kitten phase and had pretty much left this kind of role behind she didn't do this anymore apparently she did invite a friend over to her house just before making this film showed this friend basic instinct And then in front of this friend just got buck naked and was like, do I still have it? Oh, wow. And the friend was like, yeah, you still have it. Was it Hazel? (laughs) (laughs) But again, it will mean something different. And I, yes, you're right. We don't want to play into the sexism of the Hollywood industry. But yes, a 48-year-old woman opening up her legs and showing the world what she's got means something different than a 30-year-old woman doing that. And I think you would be very nervous about promoting a sex thriller for middle-aged people. Well, yes, and I mentioned it cost $70 million. It made $38 million worldwide, so... <laughs> Not as many people were wanting to go in those legs. Yeah, that was my question. You're telling me 70 million. You tell me there was a press junket. Like, they treated this like a real film. I never remember seeing a trailer for this, hearing about it. So, okay. Jacob, 
It opened in America at $3 million. Oof. No one wanted this then. Nobody went. <laughs> I remember seeing previews. I remember, again, it was so unappetizing. Like, it was just like these pasty Brits you'd never seen before. It didn't look anything like the hopped-up Verhoeven sex movie that got people all hot and bothered. It was clear they were going for something different, and 14 years is hard on any franchise. And... Sony pulled it from theaters after only 17 days. Long enough to qualify for an Oscar. Uh, yeah, but it qualified for some Razzies, too. <laughs> yes, actually, yes. I, worst picture of that year? I'm still going to vote Lady in the Water. I'm sorry. Like, that movie is worse. But they gave it worst picture, worst actress, worst screenplay, worst sequel, and in maybe the most cruel you know, the Razzie committee can have their little jokes. Worst screen couple for Sharon Stone's lopsided breasts. Ouch. Ouch. That is me because Sharon Stone is not the problem here. It's David Morrissey. Like, the Razzies, they do the same thing that the Oscars do. The more sensational one. Like, yeah, Lady in the Water is much worse. David Morrissey deserves a Razzie over Sharon Stone's lopsided breast in this. David Thewlis was the one nominated and also for being in the Omen remake that year. But he only got nominated. He didn't win. And yet the lopsided breast. I'm not going to say Sharon Stone isn't the problem here, but Sharon Stone's breasts aren't the problem here. Yeah, I think she looks pretty great. And if you want to have an aged Catherine that's still calculating and killing and getting herself into new trouble, I guess there's still a story there. I tried to think about what she means and what she could do. And coming after, I don't know, thinking about like, you know, Hannibal or the talented Mr. Ripley, she becomes that kind of killer on the loose, right? She's in Europe causing problems, calculating a plan. I went into this obviously skeptical. Anybody would. But I didn't think it necessarily had to be a bad film. Maybe there was hope that it could have been underrated. People didn't see it because they didn't want it, but that didn't necessarily mean it wasn't good. I came in with the lowest of expectations, which always does a movie a favor, because if I have low expectations <laughs> and then you are at all good, I'm blown away that you are as good as you are. But I, my real hope is, could this be Brown Arrow? I did not think this had a hope of Green Arrow, but could this be so bad that I would find it amusing? was my real hope coming in. Given I didn't like the first movie, I thought there was a chance for improvement. Yeah, but it wasn't going to be in this film, like, 14 <laughs> years later, Stuart. Come on. I didn't know. I mean, again, I like there are respectable actors involved in this, or at least Charlotte Rampling, okay? And, yeah, the director had made some okay-ish films. The screenwriter, Henry Beam. I liked his film, The Believer. I feel like it isn't a total shit show yet. But I wasn't encouraged. You know, obviously, the whole idea, even if they had made it in the right time frame, if they if this had come out in 1996 with all the other sex thrillers, I don't know that you could do anything really new that hadn't already been done. The taboos had been broken, and I'm not sure what could be accomplished by Catherine coming back for more. Which version did you see? There are two available on HBO Max. I picked the four-minute longer version. I guess that's unrated. Yeah, mine did say unrated. I'm guessing because there's, like, actual nudity or, like, graphic sex in it. There's a little bit of difference in the sex. Primarily, there's some elongated scenes in the director's cut. I'm guessing that meaningless waitress that got fucked in the kitchen was the unrated cut. <laughs> yes, you're actually right. The waitress. If you saw a waitress? Yes. 
at all. Yep. That was the director's cut. That never comes back. There was no reason for that waitress to get <laughs> fucked other than they're like, we haven't had no sex and this is basic instinct too. All right, Arnie, we'll hit him with the plot and we'll get through this movie. Sharon Stone's iconic character, Catherine Trammell, is back. Still a successful crime fiction writer, now living in London. Yet history seems to repeat itself as she gets in a car crash with her lover. She lived and couldn't help him survive. Forensics show the guy was shot full of a drug that killed him before the accident, so Detective Superintendent Roy Washburn, played by David Thewlis, believes Catherine murdered the man. The court orders a psychiatric evaluation of Catherine. Tasked with this is balcony-loving Dr. Michael Glass, played by David Morrissey. You notice that, right? Like, he's constantly by some railing, some balcony. This guy, I couldn't believe. Like, they just took the same frickin' railings, I think, set to set. Glass diagnoses Catherine as having a risk addiction. As being a risk-taker isn't the same as murder, Catherine is let go, though Detective Washburn still wants to nail her for murder. Michael has problems of his own. Years before, Michael was counseling a man named George Cheslov. Cheslov murdered his girlfriend, and Michael blames himself for not alerting the police that Cheslov was a danger. Catherine then becomes a regular patient of Michael's, seeing him daily, talking about her lovers. Michael starts to lust after Catherine, but his ethics won't let him sleep with a patient. More, Catherine starts to integrate herself in Michael's life in strange ways. First, Catherine starts to sleep with reporter Adam Towers, who happens to be the lover of Michael's ex-wife Denise. Then Adam turns up dead, a belt around his neck, strangled during sex. Did Catherine do it? Michael gets into an argument with his ex-wife, and shortly after, he finds her with her throat slit. Now Detective Washburn wonders if Michael is a murderer, killing his ex-wife lover, and then the ex-wife. Despite thinking she's a murderer, Michael gives into his libido and starts a sexual affair with Catherine. During one encounter, Catherine puts a belt around Michael's neck, strangling him as he orgasms. Is this a confession that Catherine killed Adam? No, it's a retread of the last film. Mm. <laughs> Another of Catherine's lovers turns up dead as Michael and Washburn team up to get evidence against Catherine. Michael believes Catherine's next victim will be Dr. Milena Gardosh, a colleague and friend of Michael's played by Charlotte Rampling. Michael races to her house to find her talking with Catherine, and those two believe Michael may be the killer. Or not. Catherine then tells Michael that Washburn is a dirty cop and did all the murders. When Washburn bursts into the apartment, called by Michael to save Milena, Michael shoots and kills Washburn. Michael is arrested and charged with all the murders. He's put in a sanitarium where Catherine visits and says, You actually are the killer. He had a psychotic split and killed his ex-wife, her lover, and then became jealous of Catherine's other lover and killed him too. Is this all the truth, or is this another one of Catherine's mind games? Who gives a fuck as credits roll? <laughs> <laughs> and as they start, the maybe the most exciting scene in this movie, like we get this pulsing light, turns out that it's actually the broken center line of a road. Catherine is in the midst of, well, what she would call a sexual experiment, She's driving her car through the streets of London while fingering herself while a rugby star is ODing next to her? She's not fingering herself. The rugby star's hand is the one in her vagina. It is? Yes. You're sure of that? Oh, yeah. No, that was very clear. She grabs his hand. Okay. He looked, like, unconscious. Is she Bill Cosby? How the hell does that happen? 
He was. That's why she had to take his hand. Stuart, did you watch the film? Like, that's the whole discussion with the cops at the beginning. But my question is, not who's fingering her. You're saying this is in the streets of London? Streets of London are empty. Like, she is zooming around. <laughs> not another car it's in true. sight. That's why I question if this was actually filmed in a populated city. <laughs> you might be right. They do end up in the River Thames. I mean, that is London. <laughs> Or a river that they're going to call. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think Jacob has a good point. This was a movie nobody wanted to make. If you say it costs $70 million, maybe you can pocket 50 and run away before they find you. <laughs> Extras didn't even want to be in this. <laughs> Don't let them audit us before I make it to Jamaica. So here's the thing. In, in the original Basic Instinct, there's the mystery or supposed mystery of who is the killer. We don't see the blonde's face in that opening kill. Here, like, they're telling us, like, there is really no mystery in this one. And we can discuss if it makes up for that with tension with what's going on with David Morrissey. No, I'll preview my <laughs> thoughts there. But, like, it blows me away in this one. Like, they're, they're not even trying to trick us now. They're just, I don't know, Catherine is just Jason, just Freddy now, a, a serial killer where you enjoy to watch, do her thing. So you've got this soccer player here who says he can't move, but he can move his head a little bit, and he can move his hands a little bit, but she has to do the work of putting the hand between the legs. She then drives off the road, which, you know, could be a way to do a murder that you stage as an accident. But we actually go under the water with the car. If the car right. went into the water and Catherine came up, is that a murder? But we go under the water with Catherine, we see her try to wake the soccer player up, we then see her fumble with his seatbelt. My mind is going, is she doing this so that she's leaving some fingerprints or something? But no, I mean, you would claw him, you'd leave a fingernail, something. We watch her try to save him and then go, well, I guess I can't, and float away while he drowns. So what kind of murder is it where you try to save the person? Right. I agree. That's a very crucial moment for us to show us that. It makes us think that this is not Catherine calculating the way she did last movie. And I don't also think that she at any point is writing a book about footballers or using him as the template for her creative fiction. Right? She didn't write a book about driving off a bridge. But this is supposed to be analogous to the first film, where she's fucking Johnny Boz. But she wrote a book about him. She wrote a book about Johnny Boz? Yeah, that was her whole alibi. Yeah, she wrote about a rocker that got killed with an ice pick. Oh yeah, she wrote that book before right. killing him. Okay, you're right. You're right. I forgot about that. But she had also killed a boxer, too. And so, I don't know, this is a prelude to her next Johnny Vaz, maybe? But let me just say, if this is supposed to be the gripper scene, Stuart, you said this is one of the best scenes in the movie. No doubt it is one of the best scenes in the movie. I ended up watching this movie. I couldn't get through it in one sitting. It took me three tries to watch this movie <laughs> beginning to end. So I've seen this opening three times. And I agree it's one of the best scenes. But it doesn't hold a candle to the killing of Johnny Boz in that first film. One would even say, once we hear that old Jerry Goldsmith score kick in, and we, like, see, like, London courthouses and all of that, like, that feels wrong, right? Like, this does not feel like a sequel to Basic Instinct. At no point does the sex, the mystery... Yes, they're following the pattern of the kills and, and the general overview. I get that they've copied, uh, cut and paste 
a lot has been carried over, but nothing about this captures anything I remember from 1992. I agree, and just as a sequel, like, okay, you're not having Michael Douglas come back. We hear Nick name-dropped, but, like, what happened to him? Why did they break up? Did I miss that? Yeah, they have, on two instances, we see that our main character, the Michael Douglas of this movie, is going to go to a bookstore and read Shooter, which was, of course, her detective novel. And then really late in this movie, that character is going to be told to call this cop in San Francisco, which was Michael Douglas's boss, and he will confirm that she killed two San Francisco detectives. I know that she killed the partner, Gus. And the internal affairs guy, right? That's how I took it. Okay, so yes. I guess that means that Michael Douglas is alive to come back for... For Basic Instinct 3, <laughs> should he want to. I should put out there, this entire movie was made with the intent of leading into a part three. I don't think they'd want to close the door on Michael Douglas's return. They really were looking at this as the second part of a trilogy. Okay, if this is a trilogy, so she really is just a Jason or a Freddy. Like, she is the femme fatale that knows everything and comes up with these elaborate death traps and turns you evil somehow. Is that just going to be your M.O. every time? That's all the character they got for this, Catherine? Not only that, but all of London seems to know it. Like, they all, like, are printing in the tabloids. Uh Uh-oh, the American is here. Keep her away from the word processor, because once she starts writing those books, it means that she starts doing these crazy things. And the case they're making in court is we can't allow her free, because if she writes a book, it means other people will die. You know what would have been better as I think about what you say, Jacob? Not to make this film? (laughs) Yes, you pay her $14 million and call it a day. Yeah, they would have saved money now doing that. I see what they were thinking. At least we can get some return on our investment, but they lost a lot more than $14 million. But I think about Silence of the Lambs and the follow-up Hannibal. Yeah, not good. No, but you at least had Hannibal going up against Gary Oldman. You had another mastermind so that you had two masterminds playing games against each other in certain ways. And here, we just have a retread of what was done last time. If you'd had evil versus evil, instead of basically a remake of the first movie, but now we're putting a shrink in the main character role instead of a cop, it could have been more interesting. I actually thought that that's what they were going to do. I was thinking about Hannibal a lot. Hannibal and Talented Mr. Ripley were the two that I was like, those were hits from that period that told you how to make a European serial killer thing. I'll hold my thought on it, but I actually thought it was going to be femme fatale versus femme fatale. But you're right. What this is, is this pasty actor that nobody ever wanted to see naked is like suddenly made to be the shrink that will diagnose her condition. And they meet in some, like, train trestle or something like that. I don't even know why they're, like, underground and he meets her one time and diagnoses her. And despite that, she still goes free. This is supposed to be in the prison. She was arrested, and in order to keep her, the court ordered a psychological evaluation. So he came and saw her at the prison 
in this balcony area of the prison. They're they're like in an open air atrium, but that is where he's going to interview her this first time. Yeah, don't you feel all that sexual tension all over again as she's saying the same lines about smoking and Stuart, everything you said that last film was supposed to be, like about, you know, th- this virile middle-aged guy. I feel like that's what this film is. Like this is the one take this milk toast psychoanalyst, like just no personality and turn him into a sex demon. Let me def- Defend this film, she doesn't say, What are you gonna do? Charge me with smoking. I thought she would when she lit that cigarette. So did I. (laughs) She does not say the same lines. Instead, this is an equivalency. If basic instinct one is, What are you gonna do? Charge me with smoking? Basic instinct two is, I don't like rules. And her, like, imitating a <laughs> chimney or something, like some acting exercise of, like, you will just smoke all the time because we know that irritates people. And she's just huffing and puffing those cigarettes every scene. Like, that's her one way of getting this guy hot and bothered is, like, it, the sign says no smoking and she's pulling it out every moment she can. But I'll tell you what. At least if they had kept it about these two principles, it would feel like the movie last time in a sexless way. But when we get off track, anytime they're talking about the Cheslov case, what are you doing? Stop this. I mean, that's the Taurus being shot. They got to hit that beat a different way now. Yeah, but this is like half the movie. It's not just the backstory of why this character might like be, you know, morally suspect. We're going to spend all of this time about Cheslov and who knew what and who's writing an article and did a dirty cop kill him. Like, I don't care about Cheslov. I doubt, like, you could write a magazine article that makes anybody else care about Cheslov. This is a dead-end subplot. I do agree. Later on in the film, like, when Washburn's revelations come about how he's a dirty cop and maybe shot Cheslov's wife to set him up. Like, I'm like, what what movie are we in now? Like, now I feel like Girl with the Dragon tattoo when they're they're trying to sort out all these conspiracies going on it's just all of a sudden a very different film mm-hmm. and at least the shooting of the tourists was semi-recent you know maybe a year ago maybe three months ago before basic instinct this cheslov thing was seven years ago there's a reporter working on an article about it literally old news like mm-hmm. who gives a fuck about that headline seven years on they're not celebrities nobody like again a tragic story sure but like a dime a dozen fodder that like if it didn't happen yesterday nobody wants to hear about it i agree like the fact that so much of this plot hinges on the fact that this shrink is afraid this old case from his past is going to be written by a tabloid reporter who's now dating his ex-wife is so bad and that he's always hanging out with David Thewlis, this cop that seems to want to help him, but may have, in fact, have been the person that killed Cheslov and or his wife. Ugh. That comes up at the very end and is so clumsily delivered. I don't even pay it any heed. I just like, it's, what is that? Right. It's not basic instinct. We can all agree, if you got Sharon Stone back, this movie should be built around her. She should be in a majority of this film. She should be manipulating things to her advantage. And people need to be playing cat and mouse games with her. Like that needs to be happening. And I would say at least a third of this movie is about some dude named Chesloff we never see. And another third is about Glass, who uninteresting. Do not care about this character. 
Yeah. Painful. I gotta blame the actors. Yes, we can blame him. I want to blame him too. <laughs> Stuart, can I get at least half a mea culpa, a half apology to Michael Douglas? Yeah, I know you said you didn't like what he was doing last movie and that he wasn't acting in a naturalistic way, but what he was doing was at least interesting and was a performance that... I found captivating. I know you didn't, but can you at least admit what Michael Douglas gave is so much better than what we're getting out of Morrissey? Yeah, well, I mean, at least he was doing a detective riff that fit within the confines of noir. Here, probing the ethics of psychiatrists, it could work as a noir. Maybe that's interesting to people. Michael Douglas brings something to a part. This guy I've never seen before, playing a shrink that's haunted by a seven-year-old case with a patient that maybe hit his girlfriend with a rock or something. Like, yeah, this is not what Catherine should be doing. This is not how best to spend her time. I don't even quite get why she was hanging out with the footballer, but okay, at least he was a celebrity. At least it gave her a global platform to play on. To kill him to set this all off. Look, I could see people making the shooter a bestseller. That seems like a good airport book, but the analyst, no, no. one's going to want to read this. Even if you started off with the death of a football player. Yeah, it's not the same kind of sexy profession like a detective or a sports star or any of that. Like, yeah, just it's a different movie. And that can't be stressed enough. Like, it was pretty evident to me before I knew that the movie was bad. I knew it was going to feel radically different even though they're trying to do so many callbacks, this movie doesn't have any of the spirit, seemingly intentionally. It seems to be Michael Catton Jones' director is saying, I don't want to go anywhere near the huffing and puffing eroticism that Vorhoven wanted in every shot. And let's bring that up. Is this film, for most of the first hour, is sexless. Mm-hmm. I wondered if Sharon Stone was even going to take her top off in this movie. Not that that's a prerequisite of it being good or bad, but when you think about how brazen that first movie was and how brave, I will use that word, she was with all of the nudity in it, and that being turned on was probably one of the big selling points for that film. If you're going to have this movie with, yes, this unappealing Morrissey guy and his boss or his wannabe boss. I mean, I'm glad I'm not seeing these people naked, but man, you've taken away the sex and replaced it with nothing. Yeah, all the seediness is gone. And Stuart, you said that last one felt like TV. This feels like TV. This looks like TV. Everything is flat. There's none of that cinematography, that moody lighting. It's as boring as David Morrissey's performance to look at this film. Yeah, I agree. And that seems to be a directive. We do not want to be steamy and erotic. Is that Sharon Stone? I have to believe she has a lot of creative control here. I have to believe that she's telling the director, this time I'm going to sit with my legs spread in front of a chair so you do not see anything up my dress. We are not doing that kind of movie because I don't do that anymore. The director said he really had to struggle with how do you do the leg cross scene without doing the leg cross scene. You know, you can't redo that exact beat. And so he came up with her sitting on the chair that way. So do it like a PE coach <laughs> lecturing us on how to throw a football? <laughs> or Will Riker in any episode of The Next Generation. But what I would think is, okay, maybe Sharon doesn't want to do as much nudity or 
maybe you don't want to take the character there that early, but you could have other people, and this is honestly what I expected. I expected Sharon Stone to keep her clothes on this whole movie, and that other people would get naked. You still have to have that steaminess as part of a basic instinct film. I mean, that would be like making Beverly Hills Cop 4 a completely straight action film without a single joke. It's just part of what a basic instinct movie is. And while we have Sharon Stone talking about sex and talking about fucking and that she, you know, oh, I'm sorry the soccer player's dead because I might never come again. But her performance is Stone. Sharon is giving us Stone here and nothing else is there to interest. There's no sex. There's no good actors. And this is the first hour of the movie. Here's the interesting hook. Theoretically. (laughs) Thank you. Here's where they had the pitch that made them say, well, write the script. What if you got Catherine on the couch? What if she was willing to talk to a therapist and we could psychoanalyze what her motives were? Because I think we left that first movie wondering why she went to all of that trouble. What's turning her on? What drives her? The risk addiction. Being able to give that diagnosis and to get into her past and have a therapist that might, in some kind of Clarice Starling way, probe a madman's mind so that they can learn something about, I would say, a relevant case. Don't make it this Chesney from a decade ago. Make it something that's happening right now. And you could have something there that could work as a thriller. Yeah, I agree in that Silence of the Lambs kind of way that could work. Instead, they just do the most boring, easy pop psychology. Oh, you like risk, and that's what drives you. Like, this is not interesting. If Catherine actually knew some other people, as you say, if there were another villain here, and I thought for sure, because, I mean, Charlotte Rampling is typecast. Every time you see Charlotte Rampling in a movie, and most of them have been European She is a woman with sexual appetites and very dangerous, deviant, murder-on-her-mind kind of characters. From Dexter to Swimming Pool, the piano teacher. I can't tell you how many times I've seen this woman be cruel. I don't think I've ever seen this woman, so this is shocking to me. Oh, well, she was in Dune. She was the mother that made Paul put his hand in the box recently. But yeah, she's always, she's in a lot of European films. I guess it's the movies that I watch. But I was really looking forward to her being a foil for Catherine's evil. And the fact that she ends up just being the, I think, well-intentioned friend and colleague of the shrink that wants to get him a position in a university called the Douglas Chair. Did you notice that? I presume named after Michael Douglas. Who's going to fill the empty chair left by Michael? Well, it ain't going to be you. (laughs) No way. I'm just disappointed that you have a wonderfully villainous, typecast villainous who is here doing extra duty. Why would you cast Charlotte Rampling here to do this nothing part? I mean, you're asking why. There's so many whys. Was this made by Scientologists? Because, again, all these psychologists, they're idiots. Like, they're all getting played by this Catherine. I guess she's supposed to be so amazing, but this one's more frustrating to me than that original one. You thought that one was dumb, Stuart. This one, I'm just like, this person's so obviously evil, so obviously the murderer, and, like, these people with PhDs in psychology are being fooled by her? Like, this, she's not that smart. Yeah, so let's talk about the murder that does happen, that she's maybe involved with. 
She goes to some shrink party. Woohoo! Sexy, sexy. <laughs> and she's like, there's my therapist. And he's like, oh, I can't be in the same room with you. You're my client, which is not true. But like, she hands him this toy big bin. It was a lighter for her cigarettes. Oh, is there was a lighter? Yes. It took me my third viewing to put that together that yes, it's she lights rampling cigarette with it. Those stupid cigarettes. Yeah, and then later on, whatever that, I'm sure it's got some famous name, sorry UK listeners, but it looks like a big dildo-shaped skyscraper. She'll have a lighter like that later. Yeah, his office. Yeah, it's 30 St. Mary Axe is the address of it. And it would have been a brand new building. Like, I think part of the reason why they feature it so heavily is it was the newest thing on the London skyline to keep on there. But yeah, she makes a point of having him touch this lighter that will end up at the crime scene. Her, goddamn, I have to talk about this Cheslov shit. But yes, because that tabloid reporter was going to write about his old client in an embarrassing way using sources from his ex-wife and now he ends up dead only he knows that Catherine did it because that lighter is there at the crime scene and Catherine will confess that the person she was talking about during therapy that she was fucking epically was this tabloid reporter And I thought it was so obvious when she's like, oh, can you uh, put my cigarettes and my lighter back in my coat for me? Like, I'm like, she wants his prints on that. Like, this is how one of her things she's going to use to frame him. Though he seems to have a solid alibi. And I was sure that this was why there was an unrated cut. Because we'll see Glass take uh, another therapist home. And, you know, much like that scene with Beth and, and Nick where... Uh, is it consensual? Maybe, maybe not, because he's so obsessed with Catherine. Like, he's banging this other chick, so he couldn't have been at the murder unless that happened, like, way earlier or something. But they never make it clear on the timeline. Yeah. Again, the corrupting influence of Catherine is that he's doing the... I think she's a psychopharmacist or something like that. Like, we never see her again, but she's blonde, so I think that she might be in the mix as suspects, but she really isn't. The point is that he's using her as a surrogate blonde while he is looking at the book jacket of Catherine's latest novel, fantasizing about her. Because, again, we're supposed to believe that she has this insidious way of getting into your head and making you care only about her. I love that he goes out and buys her books and gets a whole stack of them and starts reading Shooter in the bookstore. By the time he gets to checkout, he's midway through that book. I have no idea how long that checkout line was, <laughs> but goddamn, was he doing this on Black Friday? Well, based on those segments he reads, too, I don't know how this thing was a bestseller. This is awful prose. Yeah, she's a trash <laughs> novelist. I mean, like, which is not to say that there aren't bestselling novelists that write trash. I think many of them do. It was better than Da Vinci Code. Yeah, maybe. I'm not going <laughs> to die on that hill, but maybe. Uh, the, the point is that she's more notorious than loved for her writing. She's like the anti-murder she wrote. Everywhere she goes, people die and they think she did it, but they can't pin it on her. And it's given her this sort of notoriety. I just wish, so, rather than him go and read books, I really wish that the therapy, that's where this movie was going to live or die, right? He gets her on his couch He's probing her mind. He's learning her secrets. That's the good stuff. And if you had two actors that were game and a script that really was probing something interesting, it could have worked in similar ways. Yeah, the problem is, again, Sharon Stone is giving nothing when on that couch. And when I say nothing, not only is she not giving vulnerability where she's actually revealing herself to the therapist, she's also not giving menace where she is in control of the therapist the power 
she oozed in that interrogation scene in that first film should be present during each of these therapy sessions. And she's just giving flat line readings of uninteresting things. Yeah, it has nothing to do with age. I mean, how gaga do people go for Marissa Tomei as Aunt May? And she's how old? Like, you could still have that sex appeal in, in that command and that is all gone that is missing from this it's not that she's in her 40s now it's that she's not the same actor she was at 34 right she needed to be involved in an interesting plot and holding secrets that this therapist was trying to pry out of her and that would be interesting if you know just like Hannibal Lecter knew who Buffalo Bill was you know that's a ticking clock how do we solve this crime that you're peripherally connected to how do we get you to confess I would have enjoyed that movie. And I thought the movie might be going there for a second when we find out all this stuff about Washburn. I'm like, is she really like a evil Batman? She's actually laying down the clues to set up people worse than her. So I agree, Stuart. Like, yeah, you could do that Hannibal Lecter thing going after a Buffalo Bill. Like, I saw hints of that maybe, but no, no one cared enough to actually think about this script. No, it's really random what she is doing with her time. I guess just because they recognize the need for sex. At some point, she's just running off to the red light district to pay some man to do... He is the guy that is allegedly supplying her with the ketamine that killed the footballer. But he's also her sexual delight. He also works at a brothel and throws orgies. (laughs) Yeah, that she pays for. Here's how I read that scene. Please do. Yeah. Help me. (laughs) Much like how Michael Douglas followed her in the first film and it was obvious that he was on her tail. Yeah. I think she knows that Michael is following her. She goes up to this guy. We see her give him money and then he immediately starts to get abusive and choke her. What I think she's doing is saying, hey, let me give you money. I need you to put on this act for me. And then let's go upstairs and fuck. We fucked before. Here's money for you to make it look like you're hurting me and choking me. And then we go upstairs and she's doing this all to put on a show for Michael. Yeah, that was my reading. We see her whisper something to this guy and he like shakes his head no. And then she pulls out the money and he like grabs her and throws her into the brothel. And Mm -hmm. that's when Glass goes running in. And and so, yeah, like she was setting this up. But Glass ends up like looking through the skylight. He can't even find her and just like watching her in this orgy through the skylight. And I guess that burns him with jealousy. Help me out though. Okay, yes, I agree with you. It did totally look like a setup. But a setup for what? What is she leading him to? To turn him on, to get him to see her get fucked. And can I just say, out of all the sex scenes in all the basic instincts, the one she has with this drug dealer is the least sexy, because he's just jackhammering away. He's just <laughs> like, there's nothing sexy about this guy. It might be the most real sex scene, then. <laughs> yes, admittedly. It has the realism Verhoeven wanted to capture of boring-ass missionary position sex. But oh my God, it was not sexy right there's another motive maybe going on here because he is her drug dealer and later we're going to have this intrigue about what mysterious vial she has in her fridge i think that she may be teasing this therapist into thinking again are we still thinking about the footballer she killed but i think he's supposed to wonder whether this guy gave the drug that made the guy so sleepy in the car 
Yeah, I just assumed this was the drug dealer. There was some mention earlier of another one that was unreliable. I don't know if it's the same guy. Dicky Pep, it is. Okay. That said, like, she's going to claim she just has insulin in the fridge, and you could kill someone with insulin. Just shoot them up just like you would do with this ketamine. Right. These are not intriguing plots. Why she went for the sports star, why she killed him, it isn't the same thing. It really is not the same level of intrigue. Certainly the ex-wife thing. I think that's where she's taking joy in making this shrink lose his composure. He has an ex-wife that was dating the tabloid reporter that she killed, and now she's going to stab her as well in some kinky, slightly kinky nightclub? Yeah, an empty bathroom in that nightclub. There's no one in there. In the the original basic instinct, it's like, pack, they're doing coke in there. Here, there is no one but that wife. And again, for Glass, for David Morrissey, like, he married a woman who, like, gets with other women and goes to the club. Like, this seems way outside of what he'd be into. Well, where was this club? He's at a restaurant slash bar, a pub, with his ex-wife, and they get in an argument there. The wife storms out and he follows, as she goes down a flight of stairs that's outside. And I thought maybe she was going to a subway or something. I mean, London has a very good mass transit system, so she goes down these stairs and suddenly is in a nightclub. I'm like, did they turn a subway station into this nightclub? What What is this? Was she intending to go to a nightclub? Or was she just leaving the pub and ended up in this nightclub? And why is she carousing with a blonde? Because they're playing that game of like, is she with Catherine or some other blonde? Maybe it's the pharmacist that he you know was betting in the previous scene again you got to set that stuff up like i'm not even sure what the mystery it is you're teasing and these suspects mean even less like it's Catherine. we know she's the killer she should be involved with someone on her level i don't know if she's the killer when the credits roll i don't know at any point if she's the killer I assume she's the killer. Oh, I I never questioned it. I mean, we saw her try to save the footballer in the first scene, and it goes downhill from there. I felt like that was all play, like to, yeah, she's putting on a show. I don't know for who. Maybe in case the footballer got free, he could go, yeah, she tried to save me. But yeah, I never suspected anyone else. Yeah, see, I think the movie's more successful if you accept the fact that she's this amoral person that's going to do bad things. A Hannibal Lecter. Again, we like that he's a cannibal. We like that he's out there, you know, as long as he's killing the right people, that can be kind of fun. But Catherine is hanging out with the wrong crowd, and why she attacks this ex-wife, and why she wants the shrink to get so hot and bothered, I don't know. It's beneath her. I'll just put this out there. The director said on the commentary, some of the crew asked, who's the killer in this movie? And the director went, I don't know. You decide. Yeah. Okay. He probably hadn't gotten to those pages in the script yet because those shooting days weren't scheduled. I can't imagine like he plotted this out. I'm just saying that who the killer is in this film is very ambiguous as compared to the last film. And I would argue that it never was about who the killer was. The mystery was always secondary. It's about the fucking, right? It's got to be hot. We've got to have, like, Verhoeven at least understood that much. we got to push boundaries here. And we get, I mean, it takes 76 minutes to get these two together. And when they're finally knocking the boots, she's got a belt around his neck for, like, 10, 15 seconds. That's it. Well, if you do much longer than that, you're going to pass out. No, I mean the scene lasts 10 or 15 seconds. And he's given (laughs) some really ugly O faces that, like, you never want to (laughs) see. 
maybe that's why she put the belt on him. I want to say I would rather see this guy than David Thewlis in the scene, though. Oh, don't watch Naked, then. Mm-hmm. Agreed. But, like, what is she getting out of this is really the question that I'm... And, of course, the answer is that these were not the stars she wanted. This is not the movie she wanted. And nobody really thought that this was going to amount to much. Yes, when you say, what is she getting out of this, I can't tell if you mean Sharon or Catherine. Kind of both, because I feel like, you know, they're in simpatico. They they are very similar. What's good for her killer character is good for the star. It would help her recapture things that people liked about her in her star-making role. But, yeah, it all comes down to... What's in her fridge, and is it insulin, or is it the drug that killed the football player? Yawn. No, this is not it. And it's around this time that Glass starts believing Catherine, which, again, I don't understand. There's nothing that's told me that she's reliable, but now he's going to turn against Washburn and believe he's this ultra-crooked cop that's going to call this insulin ketamine, even though that's not what it is. Yeah, because her lawyer put her in touch with some other reporter, and he read an article, and all of a sudden he's convinced. That's annoying. Yeah, the, the Adam Towers... Glass's ex-wife boyfriend who dies, the reporter, like that's who he's really going to expose is not Glass for that Cheslov case, but Washburn because he's the crooked cop and that's why he died. And the reason Cheslov came into it is because Washburn supposedly killed Cheslov's pregnant girlfriend to frame Cheslov. Because he knew Cheslov had done a previous killing, or he thought he knew. Again, what I always thought Catherine liked about Michael Douglas, Nick, in the first movie, was that deep down, he had the same impulse. He was the same creature as her, and she could strip away all the things that he used to differentiate himself from criminals and expose him for what he really was, a hypocrite. And here, like, yeah, I guess this therapist does end up choking her in a hot tub, but is that because he's like her, or what? Why is he at that point? Yeah, he's choking her in the hot tub because, you know, Catherine gives this speech about what she writes about are the basic instincts. Yes, we get a definition of the title in this film. Always amusing. The lurid, the sexual, the violent. And she's bringing all of these out in glass. And so we've seen the lurid, we've seen the sexual, now we see the violent. And it's to lead to the fact that maybe glass is the killer all along. Yeah, which again, I would have argued would have been a reading of Nick in the first movie, that he was a suspect, should have been there, was kind of half there. The problem with this one is, it's mentioned at the end, if Glass is the killer, he's a killer in a fight club kind of way where the narrator doesn't know he's Tyler Durden. Here, Glass doesn't know he's killing people, assuming he's killing people at all. Right, and why would he want to do that? I mean, why would he be burning with... I guess you kill your ex-wife. That one's understandable. There was conflict there. You kill the tabloid journalist that was going to talk about your old embarrassing case. But I don't know why you, in the climax here, go to try and kill Charlotte Rampling for trying to help you get a job that you didn't get. Well, she played him because the same way... She finished her book in the first one, and that book talked about the detective dying in the elevator. Here, she finishes her new book, gives Glass a copy of it on CD. I can't believe she burned her, like, 400 KB Word file onto a whole CD. (laughs) Yeah, but 
I love the fact that in his office on his desk, he had a spindle of CDs that was half used. I mean, it was 2006. I still burn in the CDs. Yeah, he was writing a lot of CDs with these files, but he reads the book and Catherine had teased, who will I kill next? And in the book, the next one to go was this Rampling character. And so he ran over to save Rampling. He was never going to kill Rampling. But he's given into his basic instincts, so when Rampling gets in his way, he shoves her down and she hits her head on a table. Okay. This is also when... I guess they have to do the shot, but boy, is it funny that she's, like, cutting a giant block of ice with that ice pick. Yeah, yeah, what was that? Why did they have to bring the ice pick back? Because that was a defining feature of her psychosis. They wouldn't say the line about smoking, but they'll bring the ice pick back. Yeah, well. Hey, remember the better movie? Yeah, don't remind me that there's a better movie that I could easily watch. She looks at that ice pick, too, with just, like, such a moment. I'm like, does every time she use an ice pick, she thinks about, oh, yes, I remember when I killed that guy who was fucking me. Yeah. It's pretty comical, but, yeah, mostly painful. I will say that this one has all the problems of the last movie and more. Like, it really is slower, even more silly and implausible. Not that much shorter. No. It's pretty awful. And I'm happy as it's drawing to a close. And you can feel they don't know what to do. Where the last time I did feel like it was about like validating Michael Douglas in the end as being a worthy partner for a very damaged woman. Here, I don't know what. It's all the more evident that Catherine didn't get anything out of writing this analyst thing and putting him in a sanitarium. What joy could she possibly take about putting a guy in a loony bin unless... She wanted revenge for what he said about her in court. Or he's the killer. You think that's it? We were ever supposed to believe that? No. She's planning those ideas in his head because he's doped up on whatever medication in that ward. Yeah, I took that completely as I want you to believe that about yourself. But the fact that they show us flashbacks and the fact that he doesn't move or anything and here's the thing i thought maybe he was the killer i was pissed i'm like wait a second the end of this movie you're telling me the guy who got arrested as the killer is the killer that's not a good noir ending where the actual right person goes to jail that's why it doesn't make sense she has to be the killer getting away with it and making this guy think he did it but that was a very popular twist of like not the spoil movies but memento fight club watch adaptation where they just make fun of that whole trope Yeah, it is mockable, and sometimes it's well done, but I think we can all agree this movie is doing it way too late and way too poorly. But there was an extended cut of the scene. They put it on the disc as the alternate ending. It's basically the same ending, except Morrissey speaks. But the happy ending is he's not going to do any jail time, but he has to spend the rest of his life in a psychiatric hospital. And he looks at her and he says, unless I have a miraculous recovery. And so that implies that he did do the killings and he's faking this catatonic state so that he can just get off on all of this with an insanity plea. Just FYI, mental institutions for like murder, like way worse than actually just going to jail usually. So don't do that, people. Don't plead insanity. Yeah, this is a brilliant plan. Though this is the UK where Reagan didn't screw up mental institutions. So maybe it's better there. 
I'm just saying that at the end of this film, I don't know who the killer is. The only person I know it isn't is David Thewlis, who burst in the room, and I don't know why Glass shoots him. I just don't understand at all. Because that's what happened to Beth in the last film. And because Catherine planted that idea, and, and but why she wanted him dead... Why would she want him dead? Because she's omniscient, so she knew Glass would kill him, and then the other cops would show up and think Glass is the killer. It all depends on Catherine being omniscient. I mean, David Thewlis did have a few scenes with Sharon Stone in which he was, like, making it pretty clear he thought she was guilty and wanted her to go to jail. So maybe she's just that petty. Maybe it's just like, well, you didn't like me, so I, I want to hurt you. I don't know. Jacob Stewart, do you <laughs> recommend Basic Instinct 2? Jacob? Uh, it's always funny when we have to do this, but you know, I, I was shocked when you told me that there was a subtitle to this film because I was trying to think of like a better title, and I, I went to that basic like internet meme, just do the too fast, too furious thing, too basic, too instinct. But with this, <laughs> just stop at too basic because that's what this film is—just basic. And it looks like bad TV. Everything is flat, like the no lighting going on, just flat, flat, flat. And then you got David Morrissey, like. Again, Sharon Stone and her age, like, not even in consideration for how bad this film is, because Morrissey, whoever this guy is, sinks it. Like, just this bland protagonist that I don't care what happens to him or his ex-wives or girlfriends or anything around him. Like, this is not a compelling story. They they basically took the last film and just retold it with a, a few little details changed here and there. But th- there's no suspense for me here. There's no thrills, no eroticism. <laughs> like, everything that made basic instinct notable they got rid of for some reason i don't know why you do that but that's what they did with this one so again it's not razzy worthy it, it's a bad movie it's just like ah, don't see this it's, it is no american psycho 2 but still don't see this one not recommend stewart yeah i want to land on that because i think we all were going to say this is a bad film but not the way you might hope not the way that when you hear worst picture, worst director, worst, all of that gives you the idea that this was a epic miscalculation that's embarrassed. People should walk away from this feeling shame. No. I mean, it said during the therapy session, what are you most afraid of? Boredom. And that's your worst fear come true here. Like this thing is just dull. Nothing really happens. Nothing's very coherent. Her targets are like, Yeah, Nietzsche lecturers and like academics and just very unsexy people. I want Catherine to seduce the psychologically pretentious and expose them for the hypocrites they are. I want her to work in that way. If she's Freddy Krueger, then the delight is that she's going to take down the wrong people that go free in society and humiliate and embarrass them. We want to be rooting for her in this movie, but it's impossible to understand what she wants if it's all for this analyst book seems like a really bad idea seems like a very sad state of affairs for both Catherine and sharon stone it's not a terrible burning red arrow it's just a incredibly forgettable it's the opposite of risk and addiction it is completely without a hook so that's a no (laughs) they're all those Artie. they're all those Even yours is a no. But not again, hear what I'm saying. It's not the it's not as bad as you think, and that's too bad. <laughs> and I just feel like everything you said about last week's movie, Stuart, actually applies to this week's movie. You said last week's movie was boring. This week's movie is fucking boring. Yeah, it is more boring. 
Yeah, I'll agree with that. You said last week's movie was quaint in its sex. And this week's movie barely has any sex, but what it has does feel only slightly above network standards. Like, just add a sheet and everything here could be on TV after 10 p.m. You said last week's movie was poorly acted. I really liked what the actors were giving last time. This time, Sharon Stone is giving nothing. Now, the director has made comments like, she wouldn't show up on set. I mean, not like Wesley Snipes level bad. <laughs> she knew. She knew what she was getting into. Yeah, that makes me admire her, actually. You go, Sharon. Take your $14 million and run. But she was off like she would show up on set late. She'd miss call times because she was getting her nails done. All this type of stuff. The Bruce Willis school of acting. Yeah. <laughs> and so... As much as it sounded like she was giving on set is what I feel like she's giving in this movie. Just nothing. You know, I think she really just wanted $14 million to do nothing. Don't we all? And then when they said you're going to have to work for it, she just, like, this is what a work stoppage looks like. I will show up and do the bare minimum. If I have to be here and say these words, I will, but I'm not going to try. So yes, the current Bruce Willis school of acting. All of his direct-to-video shit. And yet, Michael Douglas deserves a mantle full of Oscars compared to David Morrissey, who is the worst leading man I have seen in a romance film for the longest time. I feel like some listeners could be like, you know, guys, he donates all his money to fund research to cure cancer or something. And we're going to feel bad, but he's bad. He is awful in this. He's bad in this. And I don't feel like we're alone in this opinion. This man was, you know, like dumped in the same river as the footballer. Like he didn't come back out of this <laughs> with anything. Yeah, David Thule sh showed up in Wonder Woman, but Morrissey didn't ever pop on my radar again. I really think, though, the worst offender is the script. There were two screenwriters on this, one of whom actually has a wiki page and has worked more, Henry Bean. Yeah, I like Henry Bean. Oh, he co-wrote this with his wife. Oh, okay. It's Henry Bean and his wife co-wrote this. And this is absolutely the worst problem is I don't know who the killer is. I don't care who the killer is. I don't understand why certain people were killed. Things move from point A to point B. You mentioned repeatedly, Stuart, how we're going off on the seven-year-old Cheslov plot. You could have taken this premise and made a watchable movie out of it. You could have taken Basic Instinct and made a good sequel to it. But here, you did nothing. And I'm going to say, American Psycho 2 at least didn't bring anybody back. At least it had William Shatner in it. It sucks, but it had William Shatner. It didn't bring back somebody to shit upon the performance that made them famous. Could you imagine if you'd brought back Christian Bale to just shit on the role of Patrick Bateman by doing awful? And here, Sharon Stone takes an entire diarrhea dump on her legacy. This movie pisses me off. And yes, it took me three times to get through it beginning to end because I was so fucking bored. Yeah. This is your personal face-off. <laughs> this is a not recommend is what this is. 
Yeah, I don't feel like Sharon Stone is shitting on her legacy because I think she didn't want to, you know, like she doesn't want this to be her legacy. And I have actually kind of grown to enjoy her. I've seen her in future things. I like her more now than I liked her certainly in her basic instinct prime. So I don't know. I'm not putting it on on anyone per se. All I can say is it's not the movie you want. If you want a bad movie, it's not it. If you want a good movie, it's not it. If you want a sexy movie, it's not it. If you want an intrigue and mystery, <laughs> it's not it. it. It refuses to do anything you might want to see in entertainment. And that's because nobody wanted it to exist. <laughs> it's that sad story of a movie that shouldn't be. Yeah, I truly believe Sharon Stone didn't want to do this. I believe she literally just wanted the money and then her lawsuited herself into a corner. Yeah. You're making choices about shooting dogs and doing this. And yeah, it's just horrible, horrible compromise, dissociation from all the people involved. They feel like they want to be anywhere else. I guess it doesn't, you know, need to be asked, but I will anyway, just because we do. What would a Basic Instinct 3 be? Could they continue this on? You'd reboot it, right? You'd make it a TV series. Reboot. You'd start all over with a new actress and you'd make it a season of TV. I'd make it a movie because I don't know that you could actually draw this out long enough. It would get overcomplicated and no longer be true to Basic Instinct as television, but you'd reboot. It's been 30 years. It's the right time to start looking back and modernize it and bring some new star to the role of Catherine. Oh, I know what they'd do. Of course what they'd do. Although it wouldn't have the same leg cross effect, but gender swap. I don't think they'd do that. I think you'd keep Catherine pretty much the way she is here. Antisocial, hating psychology. You'd tell more of her backstory. You'd know why she was who she was. You'd see more instances in her life that led her the killing her parents, killing the boxer, all the ways that she rigged, all the things that we had implied. I think they'd show it. Again, it feels like TV to me. I mean, if they can make Fatal Attraction into a TV series, they could make this into a TV series. They made Fatal Attraction a TV series? It's coming soon, yes. Paramount Plus. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, I, I think you're right, Stuart, with the psychiatrist idea. It just, yeah, delving into her. Forget the detective, the cop, to go with the psychiatrist and have them do the Hannibal Lecter thing where they're trying to, you know, figure out who they are and, and get clues from that. Nah, that doesn't sound interesting to me. Well, that's because you saw this film. You're basing it off of David Morrissey's performance. Yeah, I think it could be done well, but you would require people that are willing to work. Well, we are willing to work. God knows we work. This Friday, we work more with Harry Potter. I know I'm reading a lot of pages, although the book is still pretty short. At a, at a, <laughs> at a fleet 336 pages, I'm not sweating it yet with... Chamber of Secrets, but I know these Harry Potter books get bigger and the movies get longer pretty soon. Yeah, you, you guys read all that, King. There should be nothing 336 pages. Yeah, and it's a kid's book. There's pictures and all of that stuff, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not full page pictures, though. Just little chapter header pictures. I'm hanging okay with it so far. It's I feel like we got started uh, last week with the big kickoff, that Sorcerer's Stone, and now we've moved on to the Less popular, but maybe better. I'm going to just float the idea. Chamber of Secrets might be a step in the right direction as we head through the entire series for gold level donors. You can find the details on how to hear all the Harry Potter reviews and later this year, the Twilight reviews 
at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. And again, it's your support that keeps this show going. And next week, we head back to theaters and the video game retrospective series. Tom Holland not swinging from webs, he's swinging from vines in Uncharted. We're now entering that era where I'm like, I don't even know these as video games. Like, at least I used to know Mario and stuff. I never wanted to see them in movies. Now, I don't know. It just kind of looks like <laughs> Indiana Jones, maybe. So... That could work. That could be a fun time. I'm hopeful. Fingers crossed. It's always a low bar, but this could be one of the best video game movies of all time. (laughs) I was going to say, like, you can say that with every film, like, still waiting for a good video game movie. Mm -hmm. No matter what, it's going to be better than Marky Mark in Max Payne. Yep. Agreed. It's Marky Mark with Tom Holland in Uncharted. So we will have that next Tuesday. So thank you for joining us at Now Playing. Thank you to Kyle again for donating for Basic Instinct, which did lead to this podcast. And Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. Until next time, goodbye, Shooter. I'm not going to confess all my secrets, Nick, just because I have an orgasm. You won't learn anything I don't want you to know. Yes, I will. And I'll nail you. Nah. You'll just fall in love with me. I'm in love with you already. Thank you for listening to this Now Playing Podcast movie review. Look, I don't really feel like talking anymore. We hope you enjoyed the show. I hear you were brilliant in that. Help us spread the word about this show by leaving a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your podcast store of choice. You like watching me do it, don't you? Want more reviews like this one? In the archive section of NowPlayingPodcast.com, you'll find more than 1,000 in-depth movie reviews from our panel of hosts. Ain't you got nothing better to do than come in here and jack off the damn machine? On our site, you can hear reviews for every installment in the world's biggest film franchises including Star Wars, Batman, James Bond, Middle Earth, Jurassic Park, Fast and Furious, and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Exactly what did you have in mind, Mr. Corelli? And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com next Tuesday for another all-new movie review podcast. Maybe she saw something she's never seen before. She's seen everything before. Support from listeners like you keeps Now Playing Podcast on the air. You can donate directly by tapping the support button at nowplayingpodcast.com. Tell me something you're afraid of. Boredom. And you can join our crowdfunding campaign for early access to new episodes, exclusive reviews, and bonus reviews. What is your problem? I'm trying to help you. Why won't you let me help you? I don't want your help, all right? I don't need your help. Yes, you do. Need more Now Playing? Subscribe to our InFocus weekly newsletter for exclusive digital download giveaways, celebrity interviews, behind-the-scenes insights, and more. Sign up through the subscribe page on our website and get it delivered to your inbox every Friday. Well, she got that magna cum laude pussy on her that done fried up your brain. You can also compare notes with us on Letterboxd. 
go to letterbox.com forward slash now playing to see what our hosts are watching when they're not recording podcasts. And follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. Oh, I'll be leaving about midnight in case you are going to follow me. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. You know what I like about you? You enjoy being in control. Associate produced by Jason Latham. I don't make any rules, Nick. I go with the flow. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. Don't work too hard, shooter. Might drive you to drink. Now playing credits read by Brock. That's her pussy talking, it ain't your brain. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Venganza Media Incorporated. Would it bother you if you were wrong? Would it bother you if I was right? Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. What are you going to do? Charge me with smoking? Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. You have the right to an attorney. Why would I need an attorney? Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2022, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. So read me my rights and arrest me, and then I'll go downtown. Come back soon, baby. I miss you. You notice that, right? Like, he's constantly by some railing, some balcony. This guy, I couldn't believe. Like, they just took the same freaking railings, I think, set to set. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. This wasn't filmed in London. This was filmed in some building in, in Romania or something. Yeah, Caracol might have just taken the cash and ran. No, some building in London. <laughs> Tax write-off, yeah. More... Catherine starts to integrate herself in Michael's life in strange ways. <laughs> really strange. Like fucking <laughs> Nietzsche lecturers. <laughs> Why? Why do you need to do that? Yeah. It's beyond good and evil, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, that wig or whatever that is on his head. Whatever. Maybe that was one of the dogs that was shot sitting on his head. <laughs> Another of Catherine's lovers turns up dead as Michael and Washburn team up to peg Catherine. <laughs> really? That's your choice of words? I, I didn't mean it like that. I mean, peg has a certain connotation when it comes to sex. Yeah, that's a... Yeah, you need to find another another verb there. <laughs> they team up to finger Catherine? Yeah, there you go.